Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Monash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Greensboro, North Carolina. Welcome to the show, Jerome Myers. Victor, so grateful to be here. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. Well, Jerome, we've got a lot of friends in common, and I love the market that you're in. I have a lot of friends in Greensboro as well and the surrounding area. Before we dive into the details, maybe give us a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey. Yeah, man, I'm corporate America dropout. My last job, I built a $20 million division for a Fortune 550. My reward for that was laying folks off two years in a row. And I, the second go around, I just realized that this wasn't for me. And so I went and grabbed this dream off the shelf of owning an apartment building. Back in college, me and my buddy were sitting on a stoop and we were doing a little bit of math and I was paying three ninety five. I had two roommates doing the same thing. My buddy downstairs had the same thing happen. And when we multiplied it out around a complex, the owner was making $700,000 a year. We never saw him. We never taught to him. We were like, man, he's figured out how to decouple his time for money. I wonder how we could do something like that. And do we need 700000 or could we do 70000 And so we really wanted to get into it. But the problem was we were both really like middle class families that we came from. And so people who own multi-million dollar real estate portfolios weren't coming to the barbecue or for dinner. And so we went and did the traditional American dream thing, right? Get a good education, get a great job, try to matriculate through the workforce. And we kind of jumped off the train and started buying real estate after realizing we were going to be asked to do things that weren't really in alignment with our morals and values. I love that story. There's so many ways that people have the epiphany that you are either a business owner or you're an employee or perhaps self-employed, but you really want to be on that business owner side of the equation because there's money comes in only one of three ways. There's either earned income, residual income, meaning money that's thrown off a business or capital gains. And almost all the wealth in the world has been created through some combination of number two or number three. And you got that realization organically very early on without reading a book, without paying thousands of dollars to go to seminars or any of that stuff. You kind of figured it out. You just did the math and said, wait a minute, there's something here. I love that. Yeah, it was it was amazing. Now, it took me a really long time to get back to the place where I was actually acting against it, but we did have the realization for sure. That's powerful because then your your motivation was internal. It came from something that was more deeply seated. So that's fantastic. So today you're active in the Greensboro market, but you've got a slightly different strategy from a lot of folks. You're not chasing yield the same way that everybody is. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing right now on your strategy. Yeah. So I'm one of the few people who put together deals as joint ventures. A lot of my peers are doing syndications and putting, you know, 20, 50, 100 people into a deal and people are only really, really small pieces and they tout diversification and a lot of the other benefits that come with that. But I'm a proponent of owning more of the deal. And so while most syndicators are chasing things at over 100 doors, we're doing stuff that's less than 100 and we're doing it with a very small group of people, avoiding doing the securities exemptions and all the things that come with the syndication with the idea that we can come in, do a very heavy value add, capture a tremendous amount of equity, especially compared to the amount of money that we're investing in the deal, 
and then either refinance and return all of that equity to the investors or sell it, harvest equity, and then roll into a, another deal. And whether it's the same size or larger, we get the opportunity to continue to grow our wealth. I, I think that is where we're actually going to make the big gains. I, I don't think you make big gains from cash flow. It's from the chunks that you get on the exits. And so just really working through that with me and the people that I came up with. That makes a lot of sense. In order, when you're dealing with properties that are leveraged, the residual cash flow that's thrown off is relatively small because so much of that monthly income goes to servicing debt. So the residual cash flow per door is pretty small. You need an awful lot of doors. You need a massive portfolio to feed a family purely off of cash flow. Now, at some point in time, once all of those loans are paid off and the principal pay down is down to zero, those properties then cash flow like a beast. You don't need that many doors to actually make a lot of money off of cash flow. But then you're dealing with 100% equity and zero debt. And the question is, do you want to wait 25 years for that to happen or is there a faster pathway? Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, we, we move it around, right? But the question is, how much equity do you have in the deal? That's what everybody's chasing because the equity is what pays. That's what you get paid off of. If you've got, you know, $10,000 in a 200 unit deal, it doesn't matter how much money the deal makes because you're only going to get that $10,000 of equity. And so a lot of people believe that buying a bigger deal is better for them, but the amount of ownership that you get on a fractional basis is the thing that I question. At the end of the day, you can manufacture equity by harvesting it when you exit the deal. And that allows you to buy a bigger deal that's going to create more cash flow. And hopefully your equity position continues to grow and grow as you get more experience instead of just waiting for your eight pref whenever somebody decides that they're going to pay out on the deal. So that's, you know, kind of our strategy and maybe not the most eloquent way, but the way that I understand it. No, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Now, when you're dealing with portfolios of smaller buildings, the effort, at least from my vantage point, the effort to do a 20-unit project or a 200-unit project is virtually the same. They don't vary by that much. The difference, however, is like you said, you're going to have a smaller percentage ownership of that 200-unit, but that 200-unit project is going to throw off more cash and give you the ability to hire more skills and more talent than the 20 unit building. So how do you prevent yourself from getting stuck in a low earth orbit that you never that you never escape because you can't afford to grow the organization to bring in the skills that you need to continue to grow? Yeah, the execution of the business plan is essential, right? If you're able to force the appreciation, then the play there is once you raise the valuation because you increase the net operating income, then you get out of that and then you move to a larger building. I think a lot of people have tried to skip the steps of doing smaller properties because they don't want to be hands-on in any way, shape, or form with the business that they're buying. And I think early on that you should be engaged in some way, shape, or form so that you truly understand the investment. For somebody to go sign, I don't know, let's call it a $10 million loan, but they don't really understand the inner workings of the property management that's going to be responsible for making that business plan successful. 
how can you actually be a good manager of that property manager and ensure that you're being a great steward for the people who are investing in the deal with you? Because most people aren't going to be able to buy that by themselves. And I think the way that you learn that is by with the smaller deals, as with anything else in your corporate career, you didn't start out as CEO. You started out as some entry level person who was told what to do and how to do it and when to have it done by. And as you got more experience, then you continue to grow. I don't think that we get to skip those steps in real estate. I think we need to have those built in so that we have more competent and more competent operators who are taking prudent risk and putting people in position to be successful. I love that. You know, one of the things, like you said, there's a natural development process that you go through. And often in the corporate world, people think that they can skip those steps. The French Open is on right now. And if you were to go play against any of these top-seeded players, the outcome is pretty much certain. And it doesn't matter how much positive thinking or how much positive energy you bring. You haven't gone through that development process. You're simply going to fail. You're a strong dude. You would lose in a second against Venus. You know, you, you would lose in a second. No chance. You know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't even, you wouldn't even return a single serve. So you have to go through that development process. And I see it often in the world of real estate investing when people try to either do too many things at once, or they try and skip major steps in their own natural development. They get themselves on very thin ice and they don't have the skills in their team. Now, the counter to that is if you don't have the skills in your team, how do you bring them in? How do you bring in that experience base? Yeah. And so this was my challenge when I was trying to get in because I went to the banks and said, hey, don't you want to give me a million dollars to go buy this 23 unit building? And all 10 of them told me no. He said, you don't have the experience. Right. And you need to partner with somebody who has experience. But my issue was the same one that I had when I was 19 year old sitting on the stoop with my buddy Duran. I didn't know anybody who was doing it. And so not only do you need to know somebody who's doing it, but you have to be able to articulate the value that you bring to the deal. When I finally found that person, the first encounter that we had, I said, hey, I, I want to buy that deal. I was trying to buy it five months ago. And the banks told me no, because I didn't have experience, but you must have experience. And he said, what do you bring into the table? And I couldn't tell him in a sentence what my value add was. And so the thing that I tell people now when I help them get into multifamily is you become really valuable when you actually have the deal. If you can go out and find a deal that makes sense for people to invest in, that makes you valuable in addition to all of the other skill sets. But having something under contract and getting ready to execute it is the thing that makes people want to partner with you. Very interesting. So apart from having the deal, what were the other things that your now new partner saw in you and said, because, you know, a lot of rookie investors tend to make it all about the deal. You know, I got a deal, I got a deal, but it's really never just about the deal. It's first about the people. And then maybe the deal is number four or number five on the list. What was it that they saw in you that, that said, okay, I want to be doing business with Jerome. He's got the right values, the right culture the right attributes that is going to make this a successful business. Yeah. I mean, I think it's all of the things that you laid out, right? And I think it starts with values, right? When we're evaluating people we're going to partner with, we're not investing so much in the deal as we are investing in the person. We want to grow the people as we grow the property. And so, you know, what are their values? What do they hold true to be the standard for the life that they're going to live? 
and do we know that if we get into a place where the boat springs a leak, that they're going to grab a bucket instead of point at the hole and say, I'm glad it's not in my side, right? Because there's a whole lot of people who aren't going to roll their sleeves up or get their fingernails dirty. They just want to sit back and look and collect the check because, you know, they're at the beach. Well, you're running a business and anybody who's running a business knows there's going to be things that come up. And so, you know, what type of grit does a person have so that we know that we're going to fight together on the thing? From there, I think it's just, do you actually know the craft, right? Do you have an understanding of what you're doing? Are you innovative? Are you looking for opportunities? Are you solving problems proactively? Like all of those things lead to a partnership. And on the smaller things, you've got to be very entrepreneurial. It's not what I would consider to be a corporate, I mean, like a, a Fortune 500 corporation, right? The big syndications, I see them, it's all about re maximum return of value to shareholders like you would have in a Fortune 500 company. With the smaller properties, I see it more entrepreneurial, more startup. Everybody's got to wear multiple hats and you're working through the problems as they come up as you continue to develop your systems and processes and figure out how to engineer out those mistakes on the go for it. And so for me, that's super exciting, man. <laughs> when I talk to a lot of folks that have been successful in business, almost every single one of them has a story of somewhere in their past of a partnership that went bad. I mean, I have that story. I mean, almost everybody I know has that story or maybe more than one. And putting together partnerships is difficult. How do you ensure that you've got that fundamental alignment with your partners because if you're unless you're using the same partners on every deal if you're forming different partnerships your chances of one of those partnerships unraveling actually goes up doesn't it it goes up every time you add a new person 1000 percent agree with you there i think you jerry rig success by making sure that you guys have similar views values on foundational things for instance, I once had a partner say, we don't want those people living there anywhere. We don't have the same views and values because they're our customer and we're glad they're there. And until they're not our customer anymore, we want them there. That's just kind of the fact of the matter for me. The flip side of that is, you know, there's other customers who just don't do the right thing and we need to figure out how to usher them out so we can foster an environment that's going to allow people to really want to be in place in our community. So when you hear people talk about residents or tenants, depending on their vernacular, you start to get cues. I'm a resident guy, right? There are other people who see the people that live there as tenants. I've got a partner who sees them as customers. And each one of those words signals something very different on the person's view of the person who is living in the community. Uh, the other thing that I like to see before I partner with somebody is to see them under stress. And I want to know, are they taking responsibility for the things that aren't going well? Or is it always somebody else's fault? I know that I'm not perfect. I don't want to partner with anybody who is perfect, because if they're perfect, then I'm instantly going to be imperfect, even if it isn't actually my fault. And I really want to be surrounded by folks on my team who are willing to take responsibility for whatever is happening on the deal, whether it's their responsibility or not, I want them to have some ownership in it so that we're all working towards getting it resolved instead of pointing fingers and placing blame. Fantastic. I love that. 
Well, Jerome, if folks want to learn more, if they want to connect, what's the best way? Yeah, JeromeMyers.co. Fantastic. Well, Jerome, you were definitely kindred spirits. You spoke very eloquently about forming partnerships. I wish you the best of luck in the Greensboro market. It's a growing market. It's definitely heating up. There's no question about it. And for the listeners at home, definitely connect with Jerome at JeromeMyers.co. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.